Thank you so much for joining us for Ankeny Gospel Church Podcast. On this podcast, you can find sermons, classes, and other resources that continue to invite us into the mission of Jesus and the journey of faith. We hope this is a blessing to you, and if we can help you in any way, feel free to reach out. Well, let's exchange greetings this morning. Good morning. I think I have a new favorite song. I love that song. You're worthy of it all. From you all are, are all things, and to you are all things. We worship the God who was, who is, and who is to come. Um, I'm going to open us in a word of prayer, and uh, then we will dive into Philippians for the last time. Well, not for the, I hope you keep reading the book of Philippians, but for the last time together through this sermon series. So uh, pray with me. Father, we recognize that <clears throat> You are worthy of it all. And we recognize that all the saints and the angels are right now bowing before you. They're casting down their crowns because you are the one that's worthy of everything. Father, with that image in our heads and our minds of every tribe, every tongue, every nation, every knee bowing, and every tongue confessing that you are Lord, we are just so, so thankful that we get to have a little taste of that right now. We're thankful that every time we wake up, every time we go to sleep, you're there with us. We're thankful that every time we gather and we sing to you and we open up your scriptures and your words, you're with us. We're thankful that we get to participate in eternity now. Thankful that your spirit guides us and moves us and protects us and convicts us. And so, Lord, right now, and spirit right now, I ask that you would do just that. That you would allow us to take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. You would soften our calloused hearts You would unstop our ears, God, so that we can hear you, so that we can know you, so that we can live from you and for you. And Lord, we ask you would give us joy. You would give us joy in this Thanksgiving season, in this holiday season, as we reflect on what you've already given us and what you did for us by becoming a human. God, give us joy, unspeakable joy. We ask that you would give us peace amidst this chaos. Peace in our minds, peace in our hearts, peace in our bodies. Finally, Lord, as we uh, open up Philippians and we listen to it and we remind ourselves of what it says, I pray, Lord, that you would give us a self-emptying character, that we would pattern our lives after you, that we would pattern our lives towards the cross and emptying ourselves and humbling ourselves in selfless love for you and for others. Give us strength, we pray, and we pray all this in your son's name and by the power of the Holy Spirit. And all God's people said, amen. Around the first century, when Rome became a 
sorry, fourth century, when Rome became a Christian nation, they started building cathedrals everywhere. They started building, uh, you know, Roman Catholic uh, churches everywhere. And one of the things that they did is they actually started, architects started building churches in the shape of a cross. So that if you were like to look at it from an aerial view, like look down at it, it would be in the shape of a cross. And the name for this shape was called cruciform. Cruciform. Cruci is from the word crucifix or cross, and form just means shape. So early on, when Rome became a Christian nation, a Christian empire, they would make cruciform buildings so that when you went to church, you didn't just sit in like lines, you would actually sit in like the pattern, like the chairs would go this way and then the chairs would go that way in the shape of a cross. So you would actually embody the shape of a cross. So when the people of God gathered, they would literally be sitting in a cruciform, a cross-shaped way. Eventually, artists uh, started taking this into consideration. They started painting and doing things a lot with crosses. So like the focal point of a painting would be in the kind of the shape of a cross. And oftentimes, the focal point in most paintings would be a cross itself. They did this because they didn't want people to just like think about the cross. They wanted people to actually like literally physically participate and be formed and to literally sit on a Sunday morning in the shape of a cross. And it was so that, that when the people of God, they met every day or every week to worship Jesus, they would actually become cruciform. They would become cross-shaped. Now, we don't do that today, right? We don't sit in a cross-shaped thing. I don't think we're in a, yep, we're not in a cross-shaped uh, sitting situation here. But what they did, they, they were after something that I think we sometimes do today, but we sometimes miss today. They understood that the cross, the center of Christianity, the expression of love, they un understood that that was something that you can't just believe about or think about. It's something that you have to actually embody. You have to actually be situated. Your lives, even from sitting down on a Sunday morning, should be in the shape of a cross. It's something that shapes you. In other words, they didn't just, one scholar puts it, they didn't just believe the gospel, they actually became the gospel. They didn't just believe the cross, you know, intellectually was like, hey, this is a really, this is good news. They actually, what they did from the littlest detail of sitting down on a Sunday morning was they became the gospel in such a way. We do this sometimes, or in a similar way, when we uh, participate in communion every week. Every week, what are we doing? We are literally shaping our, we, we stand up physically, we walk to the front, we participate in communion, and we are shaping ourselves, reminding us of the center of the cross. Now, this is on a Sunday morning, right? On a Sunday morning, they would used to sit in a cruciform shape. We remind ourselves of the cross by taking um, communion together. But what does this look like every other day of the week? How, how do we situate our lives how do we pattern our lives? How do we shape our lives to live a cruciform life on a Tuesday afternoon or on a Thursday during work or on a lunch break or when your family's in town? How do we actually situate our lives so that we live a cruciform life, a cross-shaped life? This is what we've been exploring in Philippians the last couple months because this is exactly what Paul talks about. We actually started this series, this Philippian series, back in August with a question. And the question was, what does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to be a Christian? And this question, actually, the answer to this question isn't probably as evident as you think, because I've been 
and I'm sure you, we have all interacted with people that say they're leaving the faith or they're leaving Christianity, and then when you hear them actually describe the Christianity and the faith and the church that they're a part of, you're thinking, well, that's not, that's not Christianity. That's, that's not the Bible. That's not Jesus. You're walking away from something that you call Christianity, but it actually isn't Christianity. So what does it mean to be a Christian? We've seen in Philippians and in the Gospels and in the entire narrative of Scripture that to be a Christian is to empty yourself and be filled with Jesus. And who else did that? Jesus emptied himself to the point of death on a cross because of what? Because of love. The chief characteristic of a Christian is self-emptying love. The Apostle John knows this. They will know that we are Christians because we believe all the right answers. Nope. They will know that we are Christians because we go to church on a Sunday morning. No. They will know that we are Christians because of the way that we love one another. The thing that we've been saying, the theme that we've been talking about in Philippians, this idea that the way up is down. In other words, when we enter into the kingdom of God, we are actually entering into an upside-down kingdom where if you want to be first, you actually have to be last. If you want to be filled, you actually have to empty yourself. If you want to have, you actually have to give. If you want to live, you actually have to die. This is all patterned after Christ who was in the form of God and he emptied himself and humbled himself to the point of death and then was vindicated and returned to the right hand of God the Father. We in this life are on a downward mobility path. We in this life right now, until Jesus returns or until we're raised from the dead, we in this life are pursuing the cross. We in this life are called to a cruciform life of emptying ourselves, of humbling ourselves, and of being obedient to God to the point of death for us, maybe, literally, but, but death to ourselves, to our sin, and so that we can give life to others because we have been given life by God. Freely have we received, freely we give. And if you remember, Paul starts this letter with that idea. He says, Paul and Timothy, slaves of Christ, Slavery in the first century was not a good thing. This is not a title you wanted to say to other people. But he starts at, hey, just in case you don't get the theme here, I am a slave. I am a slave of Jesus Christ. And he goes on and he says, uh, later in chapter one, he says, even if, if, if the God, I, I'm getting ridiculed, I'm getting mocked, I'm in prison, and even if that is the case, I'm gonna rejoice because the gospel is going forth. So Paul is happy in this upside down way that he's in chains because Contrary to what, what normally happened, what you would normally think, of, even he's in chains, which means that, oh, he can't go preach, he can't go do what he was called to do, he can't do this, but he's saying actually the opposite is true. Because I am a slave, because I am in prison, the gospel is going forth abundantly. And then in chapter two, he, he pivots and he starts talking about what does the expression of this selfless love look like? It looks like joy and it looks like unity. What, what can the church look like? We as a church plant here right now. What can the church look like? It can look like endless joy and perfect unity. Why? Because if everybody is pursuing the path of Christ, if everybody is emptying themselves and being filled with Christ, what's gonna happen? We're gonna be the happiest people on earth and we're gonna be the most united people on earth. 
And Paul is saying that at the beginning of Philippians 2. He is saying, if, if you have any of this, make my joy complete by being unified. Be together. There's joy and there's unity. And then, in, of course, the pinnacle of the entire letter is the Christ hymn in chapter 2, where, where Paul explicitly says, here's the pattern. It's, it's Jesus was up here. He emptied himself to the lowest point, and then he was vindicated and became uh, sat at Jesus' right hand. And one day, we are going to join the saints and the angels, and we're going to cast our crowns down, and we're going to worship him with everybody. And it's going to be amazing. He goes on in chapter 2 to talk about two examples of this. Obviously, the reason he did this is because obviously it's like, well, that was Jesus. Yeah, he's, he's God. And Paul's like, not so fast. Here's some two examples of this. A guy named Timothy and a guy named Epaphroditus. Real life average Joes who did this in their actual day-to-day lives when they had families, they had jobs, they had things. This isn't just something that is like, you know, um, aspirational. This is real. And he gives those two examples, one of Timothy who, who sacrificed what he wanted and he was uh, selfless and he's not seeking his own interest. And then Epaphroditus who, if you remember, the Philippian church, they sent Epaphroditus to Paul because they heard Paul was in prison. They heard Paul needed some, some gifts. And so Epaphroditus went. When he was on the way there, he got really, really sick and he almost died and yet he still served Paul. And so Paul is like, this guy gets it. He's selfless. He's risking it all for the sake of the gospel. He understands. Uh, Paul moves on in chapter three to talk about this um, social dynamic of status right? If you remember in chapter 3, Paul says, hey, you shouldn't think that um, you have any grounds to boast because if you think you can get this righteousness and if you can do this downward mobility and you can do this Jesus thing on your own, you're in for something else because you can't. And if anybody could, I could. And this is where he has his, scholars call it a resume of death, where he says, "I I was the best of the best. I was a Pharisee. I was Hebrew of Hebrews. I was persecuting the church, and I don't care about any of it. Why? Because Paul experienced something in his life, in his actual life, not just his mind, his actual life, he experienced Christ, the risen Lord. And because of that, everything else in his life just went, gone. It doesn't matter. When you experience Christ, if you've experienced Christ, you have experienced that before. Where you have all these pursuits in your life, all these desires in your life, all these wants that you have, whether it's status, whether it's a family or a job or whatever, and then you experience Christ and you're like, I am so content because Christ is all I have and Christ is all I need. In chapter one, Paul said, to live is Christ. Can you say that about your life? For me, to live is, Paul says to live is Christ. He goes on in chapter three, to, uh, to, and he finishes chapter three, and he says that he has one main goal in life. He only has one goal in life, and that's to know Christ, to know the power of his resurrection, to share in the fellowship of his sufferings. That's Paul's goal in life. That can be your goal, and that can be my goal as well. And in the last couple weeks in chapter four, we've, we've, we've seen that Paul wants this idea, not just to remain an idea, 
He doesn't want it to remain an idea, and he doesn't want it to remain an individual, like, thing. Like, oh, okay, well, I'll be selfless in my life, and you be selfless in your life. You cannot be a Christian in isolation. It's not possible. So what he's saying is for you to, as a church community, have this cruciform life, this self-emptying life about you. And he implores two women who are leading the church, Yodia and Syntyche, and he says they're, they're, they're really trying to be unified right now, so help them. Bring them together because in Christ, we're already unified. And then he goes on uh, at near the end of chapter four to talk about um, this, this thanksgiving that he's giving them. And so he, Paul uh, thanks the Philippians for giving him a gift and he says, actually, I didn't really need the gift. And we, lo- we learned last week why, because he had learned the secret to being content. Paul didn't need anything. I think every, not I think, Everybody is searching for the secret to contentment. Everybody wants to be content. Everybody wants to be happy. And Paul has the audacity here to say, I've got it. I can be content if I have a lot. I can be content if I have a little. I can be content if my plans go through the way I thought they were gonna go through. I can be content if my plans don't go through the way I didn't want them to go through. How? How is he content? He is utterly reliant on the grace of Jesus. He is able to face everything in life through Christ who gives him strength. In other words, the way up is down. If you want to be first, you have to be last. If you want to go up, you have to go down. If you want to live, you have to die. Now, I just kind of gave a... a summary of the last three months of, of teachings on, on this letter to the Philippians. And what we're going to do today is we're going to try something new. So we're a church plant. We can do that. Um, wh- what I want to do is I'm actually going to read through the entire letter. And there's a lot of reasons for this. It's not just because it's not like when a substitute teacher comes in and like turns on the TV and like you're like, oh, cool, no class today. No, it's, that's not the reason. Uh, this is actually really important for a lot of reasons. One, in the first century, Letters like this were read out, most of the people were illiterate, they could not read, were read out loud, and then they were discussed and they were talked about. So the letter carrier, so the person who carried the letter from the sender to the recipient, would actually open up the letter and they would read it to the church, then they would explain it to them. In this case, Epaphroditus uh, was the letter carrier from Paul to the Philippians. There was... um, Uh, In Ephesians, there was a guy named Tychicus who carried the letter and read it to the Ephesians. Same with Colossians as well. The letter to the Romans, Paul's magnum opus, his letter to the Romans, was brought from Paul to the Roman church by a woman named Phoebe. She then read the entire letter to the Romans and explained it to the church. She taught the church the letter to the Romans. So so this idea, and then they would discuss it. They would talk about it. So this idea of of just, I'm going to, read a couple verses each week, and I'm going to read it in isolation. It's actually pretty new to, to the church. Rather, what would happen is that a, per, a person would read it in one setting, explain it, and go on. Furthermore, second reason, if you, if you look through, I, I did this a couple weeks ago, if you look through the Old Testament, the, every time there was a revival, it was when the people returned to the read out loud word of God. Moses received the law. He read it to the people, and they said, we're willing. We'll do it, right? 
Joshua enters the promised land. He reads the law to the people and they say, we're willing, we'll do it. And then they forget about it. And then they go into chaos and decay and the uh, civil war and all this stuff. And then King Josiah, centuries later, he finds it, I don't know if you remember the story, he finds it in like this closed off library. He reads it, he starts weeping. He brings it to the people, he reads it to the people. They start weeping and repenting and turning back to the Lord. Then they forgot about it again and then they went to exile. And if you remember this summer, who were the two characters that brought the people back into Israel and read the law out loud? Ezra and Nehemiah. Ezra and Nehemiah, they entered the promised land and they opened up the scroll and they read the word out loud and it overwhelmed the people and they repented and they praised the Lord and they brought the sacrificial system back in. Jesus, in the Gospel of Luke, this is a regular thing in synagogue where you would read the scripture out loud. He read the scroll of Isaiah he closed it, he set it down, and he said, today this is fulfilled in your here. I mean, over and over again in scripture, we, this is why we read um, scripture at the beginning of the sermon. So we're gonna just kind of lengthen a little bit and do it for the rest of the sermon. So I'm, I'm gonna read from Philippians 1.1 through 4.23. It takes about 12 to 14 minutes, depending on how quickly you read. Uh, I, I would love, we put Bibles at the end of the, the rows so that you can have a physical copy if you wish. And rather than this just being a passive exercise of me just reading and you just doing nothing, I would really love for this to be more of an active exercise. And what I don't mean is you like yelling at me or whatever. I mean, if you want to, that's totally fine. What I mean rather is you interacting with the text. I mean, if you want to write in the Bibles, that we offer for you, please do it. If there's a word that you keep hearing and it keeps coming to the top of your mind, oh, I didn't, man, that word is repeated a lot. Underline it, write it down. If there's a theme or a sentence that reminds you of this theme, the way up is down, underline it, highlight it. If you just wanna sit there and you wanna close your eyes and open your hands with your palms face up and just receive, do that. However you want to listen, my challenge and encouragement is don't just let this be for you to tune out and just, you know, glaze over and do that. Rather, let this be an interactive, prayerful exercise because we believe, guys, we believe that the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. So before we read, I want to again pray, and then I'll read for the next 12 to 14 minutes, and then we'll conclude with communion. Father, I ask right now that as we hear your word read over us, that it would be you, that it would be your spirit covering us with your love and your peace. Let me pray this in your name. I'm going to start in Philippians 1 verse 1. Paul and Timothy, slaves of Christ Jesus, To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and the deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God for every remembrance of you, always praying for all of you with my every prayer because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. I am sure of this that he who started a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. In fact, it is right for me to think this way about all of you because I have you in my heart and you are all partners with me in grace, both in my imprisonment 
and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how deeply I miss all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And I pray this, that your love will keep on growing in knowledge and every kind of discernment so that you may approve the things that are superior and may be pure and blameless in the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Now, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what's happened to me has actually advanced the gospel So much so that it has become known throughout the whole Imperial Guard and to everybody else that my imprisonment is because I am in Christ. Most of the brothers have gained confidence in the Lord from my imprisonment, and they dare even more to speak the word fearlessly. To be sure, some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. These preach out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. The others, though, Proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, thinking that they're going to cause me trouble in my imprisonment. But what does it matter? Only that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is proclaimed. And in this I rejoice. Yes, and and I'm going to continue to rejoice because I know this will lead to my salvation through your prayers and help from the Spirit of Jesus Christ. My eager expectation and my hope is that I won't be ashamed about anything, but that now, as always, with all courage, Christ will be highly honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For me, to live is Christ, and to die is a gain. Now, if I live on in the flesh, this means fruitful work for me, and I'm not sure which one I'm gonna choose. I'm torn between the two. I long to depart and be with Christ, which is far better, but to remain in the flesh is actually more necessary for your sake. So since I'm persuaded of this, I know that I'm gonna remain and continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith so that because of my coming to you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus may abound. Just one thing, as citizens of heaven, Live your life worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come and see you or I am absent, I will hear about you that you are standing firm in one spirit, in one accord, contending together for the faith of the gospel, not being frightened in any way by your opponents. This is a sign of destruction for them, but of your salvation, and this is from God. For it has been granted to you on Christ's behalf, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. Since you're engaged in the same struggle that you saw I had, and you now hear that I have. So if then, if there's any encouragement in Christ, if there's any consolation of love, if there's any fellowship with the Spirit, if there's any affection, or if there's any mercy, make my joy complete by thinking the same way, having the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Don't do anything out of selfish ambition or conceit, but rather in humility, consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should look not to his own interests, but rather to the interests of others. Have the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, 
who existing in the form of God did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, what he did is that he emptied himself by assuming the form of a slave, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. For this reason, God highly exalted him, and he gave him the name that is above every name, so that the name that Jesus has, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my dear friends, just as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but even more now that I'm gone, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it's actually God who is the one that's working in you, both to will and to work according to his good purpose. Do everything without grumbling and without arguing so that you might be blameless and pure, children of God who are faultless in a crooked and perverted generation among whom you shine like stars in the world by holding firm to the word of life. Then I'll be able to boast in the day of Christ that I didn't run or labor for nothing. But even if I am poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial service of your faith, I am glad and I rejoice with all of you in the same way you should also be glad and rejoice with me. Now, I I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be encouraged by news about you. I don't have anybody else like-minded who will genuinely care about your interests. Everybody else seeks their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven character because he has served with me in the gospel ministry like a son with a father. Therefore, I hope to send him as soon as I see how things go with me. I'm confident in the Lord that I myself will also come soon. But I did consider it necessary to send you Epaphroditus, my brother, my coworker, my fellow soldier, as well as your messenger and minister to my need, since he has been longing for all of you, and he was distressed because you heard that he was sick. Indeed, he was so sick that he nearly died. However, God had mercy on him, not only on him, but also on me, so that I wouldn't have sorrow upon sorrow. For this reason, I'm really eager to send him to you so that you can rejoice when you see him, and I will be less anxious. Therefore, welcome him in the Lord with great joy and hold people like him in honor. Because he came close to death for the work of Christ, risking his life to make up what was lacking in your ministry to me. In addition, brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. To write to you again about this isn't any trouble for me, and it's better and a safeguard for you. Watch out for the dogs. Watch out for the evildoers. Watch out for those who mutilate the flesh. We, we are the circumcision, the ones who worship by the Spirit of God. We boast in Christ Jesus. We don't put confidence in the flesh, although I have reasons for confidence in the flesh. If anybody else thinks he has grounds for confidence in the flesh, I for sure have more. Circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born of Hebrews, regarding the law, a Pharisee, regarding zeal, persecuting the church, regarding the righteousness that is in the law, blameless. But everything that was a gain to me, I have considered to be a loss because of Christ. 
more than that, I also consider everything to be a loss, everything to be a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Because of him, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I consider them as dung so that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not not having a righteousness of my own from the law, but one that is through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God based on faith. My goal, my goal in life is to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death, assuming that I will somehow reach the resurrection from among the dead. Not that I've already reached the goal or am already perfect, but I make every effort to take hold of it because I also have been taken hold of by Christ Jesus. Brothers and sisters, I don't consider myself to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and reaching forward to what is ahead, I pursue as my goal the prize promised by God's heavenly call in Christ Jesus. Therefore, let all of us who are mature think this way, and if you think differently about anything, God will reveal this also to you. In any case, we should live up to whatever truth we have attained. Join in imitating me, brothers and sisters. Pay careful attention. Pay careful attention to those who live according to the example you have in us. For I have often told you, and now say again with tears, that many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their stomach. Their glory is in their shame. They are focused on earthly things. Our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly, we eagerly wait and anticipate for a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. He's going to transform the body of our humble condition into the likeness of his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject everything to himself. So then, my dearly loved and longed for brothers and sisters, my joy, my crown, in this manner, stand firm in the Lord, dear friends. I plead with Yodia. I plead with Syntyche. Agree in the Lord. Yes, I also ask you, true partner, to help these women who have contended for the gospel at my side, along with Clement and the rest of my coworkers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. I'll, I'll say it again, rejoice. Let your graciousness be known to everyone. The Lord is near. Don't worry about anything, but in everything, through prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God, and then the peace of God, which surpasses understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any moral excellence, if there is anything praiseworthy, dwell on these things. Do what you have learned 
and received and heard from me and seen in me, and the God of peace will be with you. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly because once again you renewed your care for me. You were in fact concerned about me, but you actually lacked the opportunity to show it. I don't say this out of need, however, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I find myself. I know how to make do with a little. I know how to make do with a lot. In any and all circumstances, I have learned the secret of being content. Whether well-fed or hungry, whether in abundance or in need, I am able to face all things through him who strengthens me. Still, you did well by partnering with me in my hardship. And you Philippians, you guys know, you really know that in the early days of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, nobody else shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you alone. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you guys sent gifts for my need several times. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the profit that is increasing to your account. But I have received everything in full. I have an abundance. I am fully supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you provided. You provided a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. And I know that my God will supply all your needs. My God will supply all your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Now to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me, they send you greetings. All the saints send you greetings, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Father, we thank you for such a gift this word is. We thank you for Paul writing this thousands of years ago. Thank you for the church in Philippi. We thank you that your word can be read and it can change hearts. It can change minds. It can change lives. So Father, I ask that as we wrap up this series and as we just heard your word, that it would do just that. It would land in our hearts. It would settle on our minds. Holy Spirit, you are the one that creates change. Nothing else can create change. And so I ask that as we, as we worship you through communion, through singing, through giving, through prayer, through scripture reading, through scripture teaching, God, as we worship you, you would hear our praise. You would hear our worship. God, I ask that you would tune our hearts to you, not to the world, not to anything else, but to your self-emptying, self-giving love. And as we now observe communion, Lord, I pray that your name would be magnified and lifted up because you are truly worthy of it all. We pray all this in your name. Amen. Thanks again for listening, and we pray this was a blessing to you. If you have any questions or comments about what you heard, our email is info at 
Or you can find us on social media at Ankeny Gospel. Thank you.